Thank you, Spencer. Appreciate your prayer today. I have a bad throat, as they say. Technical name for it is the crud. <clears throat> but uh, um, please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 12. Uh, just to put your minds at ease, Pastor Brian will be serving communion so as so that I don't spread my sunshine to the whole body of Christ. Uh, speaking of Pastor Brian, tomorrow he will begin a four-week sabbatical uh, to uh, pursue some much-needed spiritual refreshing and uh, rest. This summer will mark Brian's eighth year with us. Can you believe that? Another curve wrecker, uh, as the average is still a year and a half. Uh, so anyway, pray for Brian as he's uh, off recharging. Um, Mark 12 and verses 35 through 37 are, is our passage this morning. Um, let me read this to us as we begin. And as Jesus taught in the temple... He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. May God bless this portion that we've just read and add his blessing to it as we begin to study it today. Let's pause and ask for his help this morning. Uh, Father, I, uh, we come and we plead for your gracious help today. Uh, I pray for your help in preaching, that you would strengthen my voice. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we hear that you would strengthen our ears, that we would hear your truth, uh, Jesus, and that your Holy Spirit would press the truth into our hearts and that we would leave changed people. Uh, comfort us with these uh, great words from Mark's gospel this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Commenting on the verses we just read moments ago in Colossians chapter 1, uh, Pastor Alistair Begg uh, said this, Colossians provides one of the Bible's fullest expressions of the deity and supremacy of Christ. This is most evident in the magnificent hymn of praise that sets forth Christ in the image of the invisible God, the creator and sustainer of this universe and the head of his body, the church. Colossians contributes to Scripture a high Christology, that is, the study of Christ. Perhaps uh, verse 18 from that chapter says it best. I, this is my favorite verse from that chapter. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
It is this supremacy that comes shining through our passage this morning. This, um, the majesty of Jesus, the incomparable majesty of Christ, is what we'll see in verses 35 through 37. And we'll see his matchless supremacy in three places in our text. Uh, There are three places here where his supremacy just radiates and shines forth. First, we see the supremacy of Christ over his adversaries. This is the first place we see his supremacy. Jesus has just completely silenced uh, the groups opposed to him, coming after, uh, coming to him almost rapid fire, one after another, sent by the Sanhedrin to confront him, to challenge his teaching. Uh, Jesus had silenced each and every one. Look at verse 35 in your Bible. And as Jesus taught in the temple. More literally, this says, uh, more literally, this says, and having answered, not sure why the translators left that phrase out, because this directly connects to what's just gone before. And having answered and teaching in the temple, Jesus said. PRV is Pastor Rob's version, by the way. (laughs) So this connects all the way back to chapter 11, verse 27, when the first group comes. Uh, 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 The first group from the Sanhedrin, uh, the, the ruling council. This is followed by Pharisees and Herodians, Uh, followed then by Sadducees, uh, and finally a lone scribe comes. This is different from the rest. He has a very positive encounter with Jesus. And Jesus successfully answered all four of these groups and had done it so decisively, he'd answered them with such authority and determination That at the end of verse 34, glance up and look at what it says in that last sentence. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now that even comes across strong in the English translation. It's quite strong in the original language. Jesus has clearly won the day. He has bested his opponents. And that's why verse 35 begins, and having answered, or you might give it the the, uh, tone, and having silenced the opposition. Jesus has bested the field, and now Jesus takes the field. He begins to ask his own questions Uh, forthcoming. This is not the last time that Jesus demonstrated his superiority over his adversaries. The most important display of his supremacy over his adversaries took place on the cross. 
Listen to Paul describe the supremacy of Christ at the end of uh, Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. Notice that first underlying phrase, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. It means, uh, more literally, he stripped them of their power. And the rulers and authorities are not uh, earthly rulers and authorities referred to. They are uh, demonic rulers and authorities, uh, fallen angels. Uh, Christ has stripped them of their power and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. We think of the cross, uh, many sometimes view the cross as Christ's defeat. I'm sure the disciples felt that way right after he was crucified, that their Messiah had failed. But this text says that this was his moment of greatest triumph. Now you ask me, how could they be stripped of their power when Satan to this date still, still feels so strong? I would remind you of the decisive battle that took place in World War II. If I asked you what was the decisive battle in World War II, you would automatically say, of course, that would be D-Day. June 6, 1944, when the Allies invaded northern France in a place called Normandy, hence the Normandy invasion. Uh, once the Allies established a foothold in northern France, basically the war was over for Germany. Uh, sure, plenty of fighting remained, but uh, the German army uh, was on retreat, uh, almost was almost crushed in France, but escaped. Uh, they even launched a counterattack in December of that year in the uh, Ardennes forest. But from D-Day on, Germany was fighting a losing battle. This is the position that Christ has put our adversary in. He will be soundly defeated one day. At his return, at Jesus' return, our adversary will be put away. Uh, until then, though, he is fighting a losing battle. That's how we can say he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and yet we observe that they're still quite active today. Well, this, of course, uh, this display of Christ's supremacy on the cross included his resurrection. I want to be careful to add that. His resurrection from the third, uh, on the third day as well as his ascension to heaven to be seated at the Father's right hand. It's all three of those events together, his death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, 
It was nothing less than complete victory. What God had planned before the foundation of the world was accomplished by Jesus, and he soundly displays his supremacy over the enemy through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And there will be one more time when Christ puts his supremacy on display for all to see. And that is when he returns in power and glory, when he returns to gather his saints and vanquish his enemies. The Bible refers to it as that day, or the day of the Lord, or the day of Christ. I want you to hear Paul describe it in the book of 2 Thessalonians. Listen as I read. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1.7 through 10. We will see his supremacy uh, put on display like never before. I grew up in a home where um, Westerns were constantly on the TV. My mom uh, loved uh, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, uh, you can imagine uh, lots of Western movies on, on Saturday afternoon when I was growing up. Uh, I took in the occasional episode of Bonanza. Really, the Western I liked the most was F Troop. <laughs> Entirely different genre. <laughs> What's F Troop, Pastor Rob? Mm. Well, there's a key point in all those m movies and, and if you've watched one Western, you've essentially seen them all, at least the kind I'm thinking about. It's when the wagons are circled. It's when the pioneers are struggling to survive, when there are in, uh, Native Americans, excuse me, uh, circling their wagon train, uh, shooting flaming arrows into their Conestoga wagons, uh, Conestoga wagons, and they're going up in flames, fighting for their lives, and then what do they hear in the distance? The trumpet. Da, 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 da. And here comes the cavalry. The men in blue uniforms come racing to their rescue and save them. And I don't mean to be flippant, but this is the arrival of the cavalry in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, I, I don't know if our wagons will be circled or not. I don't know if we'll be fighting for our very lives at that time, but it will be a glorious, glorious rescue when Christ comes on that day. First, we see his supremacy over his adversaries. 
The second place where we see his supremacy is in Scripture. Uh, Jesus goes on to quote Psalm 110, uh, where Yahweh gives his king supremacy over all things. Let me point out three things to you uh, about this point. Three things about uh, this quote from Psalm 110. First of all, we have to take note of the position of the scribes. That is, uh, what they believed about the Messiah. And notice verse 35 again. As Jesus, and as Jesus taught, or as I would say, and as Jesus answered and was teaching in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And that might come across as very confusing to you. Um, this is talking about, Jesus is asking a question about the Messiah. That's uh, what the Christ means. As you recall, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ is a title. It is the uh, Greek uh, version of the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach, if you prefer. Uh, the anointed one. It, all uh, uh, those who uh, were chosen for, uh, to serve the Lord um, would be anointed with oil, whether they were a priest at the temple, uh, a prophet, certainly, and also the king of Israel. Every king of Israel could, in, to some extent, be called the anointed one. But Scripture reveals that there is going to be one anointed one in particular. We could say the anointed one. The anointed one par excellence. Uh, the anointed one above all others. Um, each uh, of these kings, uh, priests, or prophets were forerunners of this superlative anointed one. The scribes insisted about this anointed one, and rightly so, that he had to be a descendant of King David. There are clear passages in the Old Testament that say this. This was the scribes' accepted position. The coming Messiah would be a descendant of David. So you ask, what's the point of Jesus' question then? How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? When that's exactly what the Bible said. We should probably understand Jesus' question along these lines. How can the scribes say that the Christ, or the Messiah, is merely the son of David? In other words, the scribes believed that the Messiah would simply be an extraordinary human and just a human, nothing more. And so Jesus is questioning this assumption, uh, which, was the, which was their accepted position. Jesus questions their position because of the position of Scripture, which is the second thing we see. Jesus goes on in verse 36 
to reveal what the scriptures actually taught about the Messiah. If you look at verse 36 with me, it says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Look at how Christ introduces this quote. If there was ever a case of name dropping, this is it. Uh, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, uh, declared. Jesus is telling the crowd listening, and any scribe with an earshot, that what he is quoting is divine revelation. He is about to quote the very words of God breathed out by the Spirit through King David. And he does this to show the authority with which he speaks. This is what you and I hold true about all the Bible. That the words of this book are not merely men's words. Uh, nor is it just the words of Christ in red that we pay attention to. All the words are God's words breathed out by him. Um, they're not men's opinions, as we so often hear in our culture. Well, it's just written by men. We have never asserted that, that it is just written by men. God used men, but God is the one. There, there are two authors, God the Holy Spirit, and the man, the prophet, the apostle, through whom the Spirit spoke. Listen to Paul uh, describe that. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Peter also says this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. None of these guys ever dreamt it up all on their own. But he goes on to say this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's an image of a sailboat, uh, the phrase carried along. It's a picture of the wind filling the sail of a sailboat, and of it being carried uh, downstream or across a lake. Uh, that's the idea that God filled the sails of these men. Sometimes he told them exactly what to write. Not all of them, but sometimes. This is why we hold the Bible in such high regard. This is why it's so much more important than anything William Shakespeare wrote for you eggheads out there. No offense. Uh, this, is, this is why we hold Scripture so far above the works of J.R.R. Tolkien uh, and, and his great books or any other human author you might be fond of. It's because the words of the Bible are God's own words. They are his very words written by men as the Holy Spirit carried them along. This is not what our culture thinks of when it uses the word inspiration. Uh, 
to be inspired is uh, perhaps when William Shakespeare had an idea and he felt compelled to write it down. That's not this kind of inspiration. This is on a completely different level. This is God actually breathing through these men so that what comes out on the page is not just what the man wrote, but what God the Holy Spirit wanted written. Oh, friends, this is so, so vital for you to understand that our Bible is uh, it's God's very words. Uh, so the verse Jesus is about to quote from, after he drops the Holy Spirit's name uh, in his preface, uh, he's about to quote from Psalm 110. And he's saying this comes with the very authority of God. He goes on in verse 35 to say, The Lord said to my Lord. We need to look at this original statement, and I'm going to put Psalm 110.1 up here. Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And I realize it's Sunday morning, but I'm going to ask you to take note of how the words Lord are spelled on the, on the screen. Uh, the first occurrence of Lord, you see there, is written in capital L and then small caps. And when it's written like this in the Old Testament, that means the word behind it is the word Yahweh, God's covenant name. Uh, that's what is represented when the Lord is spelled like that. And then notice the second uh, occurrence of the word Lord. It's spelled normally in, in regular uh, lowercase, capital L, O-R-D. And when the Lord is spelled like this in the Old Testament, typically it represents the word Adonai. Uh, while Yahweh is the covenant name of God, the name that God re revealed to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. Uh, and this was God's covenant name with his people. You might know it as Jehovah. But I'll tell you, no uh, Jewish person ever called God Jehovah. Uh, it was invented by Germans uh, in uh, the earliest part of the last century. Uh, the name should be uh, pronounced Yahweh. The name Adonai, on the other hand, refers to uh, a uh, uh, someone with complete sovereignty. Uh, if there is anything to rule, they rule it. Uh, they are the absolute sovereign who controls all things. And Adonai is usually a name applied uh, to God, uh, God the Father. So, example, for example, we see this in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord. David is saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai, O covenant-keeping God, our sovereign one. But here in verse 35, Adonai is not applied uh, 
to God himself, it's applied to somebody else. Look what it says. The Lord said to my Lord, uh, and the original would say, Yahweh said to my Adonai, my sovereign one. God the Father, Yahweh in this case, is addressing his anointed king, David's descendant, the Messiah. And Yahweh is addressing the Messiah as Adonai. Yahweh is referring to the Messiah as the absolute sovereign. So Jesus is pointing out that in Scripture, the Messiah was not just the son of David. Not merely a human descendant of David. As the scribes believed, the Messiah was referred to as God and called God by Yahweh himself. <clears throat> I better calm down a little bit or I'm going <laughs> to... But that isn't all. Look at how the verse continues. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Not only does Yahweh address the Messiah as God, he also gives him the position of highest authority and privilege, a seat at his right hand. Uh, Revelation 3.21 uh, describes this. Actually, it's Jesus who describes it to us. Uh, it says, uh, let me catch up with myself. So this is Jesus speaking to one of the seven churches. Christ says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Here's the part I want you to notice. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne throne. This is the position that was given to Christ after he rose from the dead, after he stripped his enemies of their power through the cross. The Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heaven, position of honor and authority. And so Paul describes it this way, um, I want you to see this description. It's, it's very important. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Past tense. It has happened. Christ is seated at the Father's right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Power and dominion, again, referring to angelic and perhaps demonic authorities and powers. Uh, it goes on. And above every name that is named. You see how Christ is given uh, supreme over authority over uh, God the Father's creation. Uh, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is not going to ascend the throne at some future date. Friend, he's already enthroned next to his father, 
ruling this universe right now. And he is in absolute control of it. Uh, things are unfolding according to his sovereign decree, as difficult as that is to get your head around. He is working all things for his glory and for, for your good. Jesus says, this is the position of Scripture. He's not just the son of David, scribes. He is far more than that. Jesus demonstrates by the authority of God's word that Messiah is so much more than just the son of David. And this leads us to um, the inescapable conclusion, the inference that must be drawn from what he's been quoting from Psalm 10. Uh, since Psalm 110 says this about the Messiah, what's the inevitable conclusion? And we see this in verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he, his son? Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. Since David calls him Adonai, uh, how can the Messiah merely be referred to as the son of David? How can you believe that he's merely a human descendant? The conclusion is, from what Jesus said, he can't be a mere human in the lineage of King David. He can't merely be the son of David. He must also be the son of God. If the Messiah is called Adonai by Yahweh himself, God the Father, and if the Messiah is given the position of highest honor and authority at the Father's right hand, then the Messiah must be the Son of God in addition to being the Son of David. This is the closest Jesus gives, uh, closest he comes to giving a public declaration of his identity that we have seen so far in Mark. Uh, he will explicitly state who he is at his trial in chapter 14. Uh, some who have been calling him son of David. For those, he has just revealed that the son of David is far more than the son of David. He is as well the son of God. And those with ears to hear would have heard this. We see the supremacy of Christ not just in his adversaries. We see it secondly uh, in Scripture. Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 where he is referred to as Adonai, the complete sovereign. Well, we see his uh, supremacy in one more place. Uh, his supremacy, uh, the supremacy of Christ, is seen by the people. Uh, the crowd rejoices to hear that the Messiah would be God, uh, the Son of God. And we see this in the very last line of verse 37. Look at that phrase, and the great throng heard him gladly. The crowd rejoices to hear what Christ has just explained to him. Uh, 
uh, it was a, a large crowd, a, a multitude um, that had gathered as he was verbally sparring with the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and, and the one scribe. And they did this to remind you in a place called the Royal Stoa or Royal Portico. It was this long building open to the air, but uh, uh, a roofed building. Uh, that was supported by 40 columns, 40 columns that it took three men to get there, uh, 40 columns in each row of columns, rather, uh, 40 columns this way, and it looks like they suggest seven rows. Um, each column, it took three men to encircle the column. It's a huge open-air uh, place, uh, and this is where the crowd is assembled, room for uh, lots of people here. And look at their response to Jesus' teaching. Uh, Mark said they heard him gladly. Uh, they listened to him with delight. Uh, this is a superlative. Uh, good, better, best. Uh, in other words, they took great delight. They were most glad uh, to listen to him. They took great pleasure, great enjoyment, hearing what Jesus had to say as he bested his opponents, as he demonstrated from Scripture who the Messiah would truly be. They took great delight in hearing that the Messiah would be God's Son. This does not necessarily uh, mean that they believed Jesus to be the Messiah. Some did. Remember that they were looking for a conquering hero that would drive out the Romans. And Jesus, as we've seen, had a way of continually disappointing them in those expectations. He was not that kind of Messiah. He will be one day. But they took great delight in hearing Jesus describe the supremacy of the Christ, of their Messiah. Friend, this is what the supremacy of Christ can do for each one of us. Uh, hearing about his supremacy as it's described in the word of God is a cause for great gladness, uh, uh, superlative gladness. Hearing that Jesus is Adonai, the absolute sovereign, can be a cause for delight. Hearing that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand with all things placed under his feet, including the powers of darkness. That can be a reason for great confidence. As we grasp that our employer is not the one calling the shots, but the Lord Christ is. It's meant to calm us and give us security in him. And as we learn that Christ is completely committed to doing us good in his plans for us, this is meant to stir up trust in him and confidence that he will be faithful even though we might not understand what's going on. And as we become aware that Christ even reigns over illness in our family or our own decline in health, we cry out to him for mercy for ourselves and our loved ones, that he will strengthen us to endure what he's allowed. 
a Puritan pastor kind of summed it up like this. His name was Isaac Ambrose. And listen to what he said. Only Christ is the whole of man's happiness. The sun to enlighten him, the physician to heal him, the wall of fire to defend him, the friend to comfort him, the pearl to enrich him, the ark to support him, the rock to sustain him under the heaviest pressures, as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Only Christ is that ladder between earth and heaven, the mediator between God and man, a mystery which the angels of heaven desire to pry and peep and look into. So as Paul said, uh, as we noted at the beginning, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And this is what comes radiating through these verses. And we've seen the supremacy of Christ in three places. We saw uh, the supremacy of Jesus over his adversaries. Uh, his supremacy is seen in the scriptures, as Jesus explains Psalm 110. And the supremacy of Jesus, lastly, was seen by the people who heard him gladly. Pray with me as we proceed to take the Lord's Supper. There are so many things that compete for the supremacy in our lives, Lord. It is... Uh, actually hard, difficult to imagine. Clearly, we're called to put you in the place of supremacy, towering far above all other things. Anything that we hope or dream of, Jesus, you are meant to be in that place. You are our great source of gladness. Savior, it's difficult as humans for us to put you in this place. We would say with the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts remain a ceaseless factory of idols, cranking one after another out uh, every day. Oh Christ, give us affection and desire for you. Inflame our hearts that we might pursue you more fully. And Jesus, put you in the place that you so rightly deserve in our lives. That we would remove any other uh, pretender or contender to the throne and allow you to reign over each of us individually and all of us as a church. Christ, please do this through your good spirit. We ask Jesus in your name. Amen. Pastor Brian's going to come forward and lead us in the Lord's Supper. <clears throat>